Hi there, it's Rachel Duncan, um, member of Emergency Medical Minute, and I am here with Michael Hunt, physician at, in the ER at Swedish Medical Center. Thanks for being with us, Mike. Ah, good morning, thanks. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm excited about our topic today, biological terrorism. Definitely an unusual topic that I don't know a lot about, except what I see on the news, of course, which I'm sure is totally correct. Yeah. Um, how did you become interested in biological terrorism? Well, you know, I, I'm going to have to give props to one of my mentors, um, a gentleman named John Marks, who I trained under at Denver General, now Denver Health, and was the director at Carolina's Medical Center. He, besides uh, giving me lots of great training, did give me one piece of advice. He said, you know, pick a, a niche in emergency medicine. Find something that's unique that you do differently or better than anyone. And when I left residency and went to Washington, D.C., I was on the faculty at George Washington University and had the opportunity working with the White House and, and military and, and uh, some hazardous materials folks to get involved in chemical weapons. Uh, there was a, a housing project that was being developed behind American University. And uh, while they were in the process of trenching and putting in pipes and lines, uh, one of the workers came across uh, a bunch of material that were buried that was buried uh around world war one because the germans had developed trench warfare with chemical weapons the u.s tried to play catch up quickly developed some sites on the east coast did some experiments by digging concentric trenches and placing test animals in the trenches and firing different types of weapons into the area to see what the effect would be so they could transfer that information to the battlefield and uh, chemical warfare. But back in the days, there was no Title III Sarah Superfund type regulations. And the way they cleaned up was throw dirt and lime on it and cover it up and walk away until the guy with the backhoe came and found it. So uh, this was the first time the military ever had to do a chemical weapons cleanup on civilian soil. So they needed a civilian doctor to get involved. And uh, so to this day, I, I still think I'm the only civilian doctor to do a military uh, weapons chemical cleanup or be involved in that at that level. Uh, so as a result, they, they sent me for training to the military facilities, both for chemical and biologic weapons. So um, what I thought we talked about, today, not the chemical, but that's how I got started. Uh, talk about some of the biological type weaponry wow. and what terrorists use and why they do it and what the implications are for us. You have a lot of government secrets. No, uh, no secrets. <laughs> my, I think my all my non-disclosure agreements have expired by now. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, okay. Well, can you give our listeners a brief history of the use of biological agents as weapons? Sure. Uh, you know, when you when you think about the weapons terrorist use, we, we break them down into nuclear, biologic, and chemical, general. Mm -hmm. of, of all of them, biologics are the oldest. Uh, there's a, a really profound history about biologic weaponry. If you look in the Bible, Assyrians used it as far as several thousand years ago when they would take dead animals and put them in their enemies' wells. And that, that served as a biologic way, poison the water source. Mm -hmm. uh, in more modern times, you know, we, we certainly saw it uh, during um, times like World War II. The Japanese did it. Uh, the Germans really didn't. Uh, but the, there's a, a Japanese general named Ishii who had a unit 731 and would actually 
infect Korean and Chinese soldiers with plague to see what the effects would be. Really? But we even had it here in the United States. We had a fellow named uh, Lieutenant Jeffrey Amherst who, during the French and Indian War, tried to infect the native tribes with smallpox by providing them with blankets that had been infected from smallpox victims. The scabs are still in there. The scabs are infectious. He introduced uh, smallpox into them. The Germans in World War I tried to introduce a disease called glanders into the mules and horses in the United States because that was the primary mode of transportation at that time, trying to affect the transportation supply lines. Wow. That's amazing how much we've used it in history. I was not aware of many of those. Um, why would someone use biological agents versus others? Um, great question. When you look at the cost and effectiveness of those different nuclear, biologic, and chemicals, uh, the, the most cost-effective, cheapest way to infect a large populace is biologic weapons. If you compare costs you know, for traditional warfare, you're talking a couple thousand dollars per square kilometer to wipe out a moderately dense population. Um, the nuclear weapons are somewhat cheaper, around probably $800 a square kilometer, just because of the research and development and production. Uh, chemicals are even cheaper, but when you get down to biologics, it's about a dollar per square kilometer because these things can be made fairly simply and cheaply. doesn't take big lab facilities. And when you start to produce the agent, if you're able to effectively weaponize it and get it to the right size, which is critical, then you can infect large populations with very little money investment. So it's it really is the poor man's nuclear bomb. Wow. So you've talked about a few different agents now. I'm super nerdy. I'm a pharmacist. I like to know mechanism of, mechanisms of action and how these things work. So can you get into that at all? Act, yeah. So when I talk about uh, weaponizing a, a, a product, you want to get it down to small particle size. And okay. for a terrorist to be effective, the most effective way of dissemination is aerosolizing the product. Okay. When you think about biologics, the skin is a great barrier. So almost every agent is protected from uh, infectivity by, by intact skin. So if you have, have that, then you know just putting the, the bacteria on your skin really won't cause a problem. If you have interrupted skin or if you get on the mucous membranes, if you ingest it or inhale it, or if for any reason uh, it penetrates the skin with a weapon, with an explosion, then, it, then it's introduced in the body. And the mode of introduction really determines the effect on the body. To be most effective, uh, a terrorist would want to aerosolize the product. If you inhale it, if you can create products that are one to five microns in size, about the size of a red blood cell, then that gets down deep into the alveoli and then the bacteria, or in the case of one agent that I want to talk about, anthrax, uh, the spores will break down and become infective. So the smaller particle size deep into the lungs, aerosolized product, absolutely the most effective way for a terrorist to introduce that product into a population and get the desired effect. Okay. So like those envelopes coming in the mail that had the spores, so people would breathe those in and that's really how something like anthrax is affected. Yeah. As a matter of fact, anthrax is only infectious by the spores. Gotcha. Uh, and, and that's what makes it kind of a, yeah, I call it the prototypical uh, biologic agent because you always have to worry about, uh, a terrorist would worry about 
becoming ill or injured or infected or exposed to any of these agents that he might use. But using anthrax spores, if you can infect yourself or uh, protect yourself from inhaling or getting the spores inoculating your skin, then you can typically work with it with impunity. Um, that's different from a chemical or a nu nuclear weapon where you have mm -hmm. to take many more precautions. Okay. So let's say a patient presented to the ER. I mean, how would we detect these types of things in our patients? You know, that's that's also one of the ways or, or one of the more uh, clever ways that a terrorist might use this stuff because a lot of the signs and symptoms are not unique to any of the agents. They may present as a common cold. And, and we really use the epidemiologic clues to help us determine if someone has been infected with one of these things. Um, there's a high illness and death rate that would not be normally associated with uh, a typical viral process that's run into the community. Respiratory symptoms would predominate because if the terrorist has done it right, they're going to be breathing in the agent. Um, if the agent is not endemic for the region, for example, plague, plague in Colorado exists. We get yeah. a few cases every year, mm -hmm. but plague doesn't exist necessarily in Chicago or New York or Portland, Maine. Mm -hmm. So if someone gets plague there, then you have to think terrorists has been involved in it. Oh, I see. Okay. The other thing about the, the agents is that the, uh, the Russians developed a multiply drug resistant anthrax. That's part of the chemical weapons program. So when you start to encounter agents that would typically be responsive to what you expect, for example, anthrax, wild anthrax should be responsive to penicillin. But mm -hmm. when it's not, you think, well, this is, could be one of these agents that was sold on the black market or is released in the community. And now one of these multiply drug resistant pathogens has been, ex has been uh, released into a community. But generally we depend on, on the information that we get, just like we see a patient who might come in with a flu type illness, you know, you know, vomiting and diarrhea, food poisoning. Where have you been? What have you eaten? Um, who have you been in contact with? You know, all that travel type history mm -hmm. uh, to try to put together a, a pattern. Um, a lot of these things have, uh, they uh, by by nature by their nature have uh, time periods in in which um, they may not manifest so they have a uh, incubation period so some of the incubation periods are can be a couple of weeks so you get exposed don't have symptoms for a couple of weeks still infective transmit that to people in whom you're with con in contact with and, and then it's a, a very insidious way to introduce illness into the community there's probably some form of epidemiology involved where you sort of have to work backwards if you realize that there's a trend and having to look where did the patient get it um, and see where it's coming from. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you, when this stuff happens in the wintertime, when we're looking at everybody and thinking flu, mm -hmm. but something like this is introduced, we, we very easily miss that. Okay. Gotcha. Are there um, categories that you put these different type of biological weapons into? Um, is, are there different groups or are they all totally different? Oh, there are different groups. There's probably three major ones, bacteria, viruses, and then the toxins produced by bacteria. Okay. Um, fungi are also one, but a very minor one. I think when you look at the, the potential for any of these agents to be used, those bacteria, viruses, and toxins are the main ones. Okay. 
Give us an example of a bacteria that has been used as a biological weapon. Okay. Uh, I think, you know, again, anthrax is probably the prototypical one. Yeah. Um, anthrax is a uh, gram-positive bacillus that forms a spore, kind of a protective coat around the uh, bacteria to allow it to exist during times of uh, less than optimal reproduction. So uh, those spores can be saved, can be buried in the backyard, can uh, can exist in, in a form that allows them to be uh, reconstituted dozens and dozens of years later. Once it's introduced into the body, then the bacteria grow and then they release a couple of factors uh, in, the, in, in anthrax, edema and uh, a toxic factor um, uh, called a, a lethal factor are the, the two that do the damage in humans. Yeah, I was looking at some of your pictures before we started and they really tells the tale of folks that can get infected with anthrax and a lot of it was very edematous. Yeah, and those are, are a lot of those are the cutaneous forms. So there, there's really three forms of anthrax. There's the cutaneous form. It's called wool sorters disease. Um, this is something that might happen if a uh, hide or a, some other animal product is brought into the United States from an endemic um, region, and then the spores are in the material. The someone handles it. They have spores in their fingernails, they scratch themselves, mm -hmm. and they inoculate themselves. And then it forms a scab or scar that's very black. And that's where the name comes from. Anthrax is like anthracite coal is black. Okay. So it's very dark escar. That particular entity is it has mortality around 20%, but if you recognize it and start to treat it with appropriate antibiotics, then the mortality is low, 1%. As opposed to something like in uh, uh ingested anthrax. Mm -hmm. So again, the, the root of administration determines the symptoms. If you ingest the anthrax, you get GI symptoms, causes gut necrosis with the lethal factor and the edema factor. And then the mortality is around 50%. But the good terrorist is going to put it in the air. You're going to breathe it. And the mortality of inhalational anthrax approaches 90%. How would you diagnose and treat a case of anthrax? Okay. So the Incubation period for anthrax inhalation is about two to six days. Okay. And uh, those symptoms are very nonspecific. It mm -hmm. may be cough, myalgias, fevers, uh, those sorts of things. If you do an x-ray, uh, about 70% of people have something that looks like a pneumonia, but the predominant finding is a mediastinitis. Oh, they okay. get a wide mediastinum because as the bacteria get in the alveoli and the macrophages come and attack the bacteria take it to the regional lymph nodes, those are in the mediastinum. So you see this fluffy, wide mediastinum on x-ray. Um, you can do uh, blood cultures. Uh, I, I think PCR exists for this as well, which is a more rapid turnaround. But I think the key is you've got to suspect it because if you don't know to order the test and look for it, a lot of the, the signs and symptoms physically are nonspecific and don't give you a great clue as to the source. Okay. What about once you diagnosed it, how would you go about treating anthrax? So again, the, the wild anthrax, uh, it, you know, it used to be in this country and in the military, we even used to do vaccinations. Now, yes. if someone has been exposed, uh, wild anthrax should be res responsive to penicillin. But because the Russians developed these multiply drug resistant forms, ciprofloxin and doxycycline are probably the, the two antibiotics that we would use for 
for that entity. Okay. Do we still vaccinate in the military against anthrax? Uh, we don't anymore. There was a renewed program back in the 80s for the military, but that was discontinued. So we, we don't do that any longer. Gotcha. It used to be that even large animal vets in this country used to get vaccinations for anthrax back in the middle of the last century. But uh, it, this, the, the pool is now so small that it's not necessary. Okay. Um, so that's one bacterial agent. Are there any others that you've seen used before? Well, uh, you know, the, our government and other governments have used a bunch. Things like uh, plague uh, has been used. Plague's an endemic uh, agent. It, it's in Colorado, like I said. It is a, a gram-negative, non-spore-forming bacillus, um, usually transmitted by fleas and rodents. has an interesting history when we talk about history. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh Plague in the Middle Ages was spread because a group of marauding terrorists, if you will, surrounded a a city uh, on the edge of the Black Sea, couldn't penetrate it. Plague infected their camp. They took their nearly dead bodies of their soldiers, catapulted them over the walls, introduced plague in the city. City fell. People disseminate from that, thought to be one of the, uh, the foci or disseminating points for plague in the Middle Ages. Um... When we get plague here, when we see it in Colorado, it's usually the what's called bubonic plague. Mm-hmm. A flea bites you, regurgitates the Yersinia pestis from its gut mm-hmm. into your bloodstream. The the bacteria go to regional lymph nodes, and those lymph nodes swell, and that's a bubo, and that's what bubonic okay. plague is. A terrorist, if he was to take those agents and aerosolize them, introduces pneumonic plague. Okay. Um, so I guess my my biggest fear is I see a guy who comes in with a bubonic plague. I think it's an abscess. And I cut it open, and now I convert that into a septicemic plague and increases mortality from 50 to 90% unknowingly. Wow. Um, this, uh, as, a, as opposed to anthrax, which does not have person-to-person transmission, and that if there's a good thing about it, that's it. Uh, bubonic or pneumonic plague uh, can't be transmitted person-to-person. So okay. if someone costs signing the back of an ambulance in an ER, you can contract plague from them in that in that fashion. So how would you go about treating a patient that had bubonic plague or had infected others? Um, the the um, incubation period for that is a little bit shorter, a couple, three days. Uh, so uh, typically you have the opportunity to get on top of it quicker and same thing, antibiotics. Usually we're finding that mostly the, the fluoroquinolones mm-hmm. are effective antibiotics for most of these because the Russians did not have fluoroquinolone class agents available when they were creating their multiply drug resistance. So this has been a, you know, a, uh, a development in pharmacology that has allowed us to combat man-made induced terrorist agents. See? Pharmacology helps everyone, right? <laughs> so you talked about a couple of bacterias. What about viruses? Are those even more insidious? Um, are there any that have been used in the past? I think if, if you look at uh, viruses, uh, there are a couple classes. One is smallpox. We we're, we're very yes. concerned about smallpox because it was a scourge for mm-hmm. medicine for a long time. The last known wild case was in the 70s, uh, and we stopped doing immunizations for the general populace in 1980 or so. Um, the, uh, the CDC, however, recognizes that that still is a potential problem. And so they are creating vaccines. And if you look at the CD web, CDC website, it'll tell you that uh, there are enough 
doses of vaccine available for the populace should an outbreak occur. In my opinion, that means one for every person in the United States. We do not. I, I got smallpox vaccine as a kid. I'm sure you didn't. Okay. Uh, no one knows if that vaccination is still effective. Um, ah. And it's thought that there are some foreign governments that have the smallpox in their possession. Uh, North Korea has said, we have it, we'll use it. It used to be just the United States and Russia as research facilities who kept some on hand, but there there's claims and reports that it's escaped the, those confines from Russia and, and now other entities have it in their possession. So the, the big concern for smallpox is it's highly infectious and easily transmitted and it has a very delayed uh, incubation period. So it's thought that uh, the if you're exposed to someone with smallpox, they cough on you, you have mm -hmm. about a 30% chance of acquiring it. If you acquire it, you have about a 30% chance of dying. So that's about a 10% mortality for exposure. Um, and because the incubation period is anywhere from 7 to 17 days, people are infectious before they manifest symptoms. So that's the big concern. Someone gets exposed. It's in the community. They have the agent that is infectious. They expose other people before they even know they're sick. So the thought is using that as an agent would be devastating. So if someone became infected with smallpox, is that treatable? Yeah, it's like any other virus. There is no treatment other than supportive care. Okay. It's to think about chickenpox. Yeah. You know, if you couldn't treat chickenpox, you can immunize against it. Yes. But once you acquire the disease, it's it's a supportive therapy beyond that and then kind of limiting the spread. Yeah. So don't have a smallpox party. Don't even think about with your it. your children. Exactly. Okay. Got it. Got it. Um, are there any other viruses that you've uh, seen used commonly well, as weapons? Uh, yeah, uh, certainly not used commonly, but have been used by some people. And I think the ones that you worry about, things like the viral hemorrhagic fevers. Ebola mm -hmm. is the prototypical one, but there are other, there are probably nine different viral hemorrhagic fevers. We have one in Colorado, uh, the uh, hantavirus. Oh. Okay. And, and that's one of the viral hemorrhagic fevers. A lot of these things are endemic in in zoonotic populations. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just a matter of identifying it, harvesting it, and producing it. Ebola is so terrible because, uh, depending on the strain, has up to a 95% mortality. Uh, wow. Like every virus, uh, it has a predilection for a body system. Uh, hepatitis likes the liver. You know, okay. you know, rotavirus likes the upper rest or uh, stomach GI tract. Mm -hmm. Rhinovirus likes the upper respiratory system. So the Ebola virus or those viral hemorrhagic fevers like the hemopoietic system, like the spleen, like bone marrow, like capillaries and blood vessels. So that's where they do their uh, their damage. Mm -hmm. um, they cause a DIC. They cause a capillary permeability and, and death by bleeding to death. Uh, highly contagious. Uh, if you don't know you're dealing with it and you don't know you're exposed, then there's much, little you can do other than supportive care once someone acquires it. Okay. And again, it's not going to be treatable except for supportive care. Correct? Yeah. I mean, you can, you treat, you know, like you can give blood products yeah, and that sort of thing. But, but is there an antibiotic? No. Okay. You also mentioned toxins as a potential weapon. That was your last category. Um, can you give us an example of a toxin that's been used? Uh, so I think the one that you would be most likely to encounter is probably the most potent biologic agent there is, 
It's the one that we use uh, for headaches and wrinkles on our face. It's oh, botulinum, botulinum toxin. Yeah. It is approximately 15,000 times more toxic than the toxic, most toxic chemical weapon we have called VX. It takes just a drop of purified botulinum toxin to potentially cause death in 200 people. Again, wow. the, the, the challenge for the terrorists is how do you disseminate, how do you yeah. expose people to it. But botulinum toxin has a, a very unique uh, way of causing disease and death. It causes a descending paralysis as, as opposed to some of these things like uh, tick fevers and Guillain-Barre, which are more ascending paralyses. This causes a descending paralysis and, and it's an effective neuromuscular blockade. It does not allow the neurotransmitter to get to its target. And by doing that and causing the bulbar palsies, you start to have this uh, numbness in your forehead and then you get all these ocular paralyses, ptosis, diplopia. Um, you start to have difficulty breathing and talking and you have control uh, trouble controlling your airway. And then finally, uh, because it has uh, skeletal muscle paralysis effects, and then it paralyzes the diaphragm. And, and people who who develop this syndrome will die respiratory deaths because okay. their airway control and, and paralysis their diaphragm. The treatment, again, is, uh, is supportive. If you recognize that you see someone's having trouble breathing, just like you have a COPD patient or yeah. anybody else who you need to control their airway, and you ventilate them. The CDC does have antitoxins. Really? Uh, and there are probably five different strains okay. uh, that... Uh, that can be treated. So it's a matter of you know, contacting the CDC and, and generally this can be sent to you immediately. If you have someone in the ICU, identify them as a potential botulinum okay. exposure and then administer the antitoxin. Wow. You've talked about a few different, very dangerous sounding agents. Um, what are your thoughts these days on the actual risk of these being used? You know, I, I don't know if anyone knows what the, the chances are, I think that at some point they're going to be used. I think right now it's easy for terrorists to use bombs uh, because the material is readily available, easily uh, manufactured. At some point, there are groups and governments who become more sophisticated and will start to develop these biologic weapons. So it really is a matter of when and, and that question is still out there. I think the things that we do to become educated and train and be aware of it, and then like any disease, if you, if you don't consider the possibility, you're going to miss it. So while I think the, the total risk is low, I, I at some point it's going to happen. And for example, the anthrax envelopes that were mailed yes. out 10, 20 years, whenever, 10 years ago, mm -hmm. you know, and placed in the mail, and sent to uh, news reporters and members of Congress. You know, that was a very crude and primitive way to expose them, but, it, but some people got sick from it. Yeah. Um, it was interesting in that uh, the way that it happened is they, they put the, the spores, the product, in envelopes. And when they went through the sorting presses at the post office, the rollers actually compressed the agent and sent it out through the envelope through the pores and creases of the envelope to expose the mail workers uh, at the sites. So unintentionally, it became an aerosolized product. Oh, gosh. But, but you know, as 
groups and entities and individuals become more sophisticated and knowledgeable about this, mm-hmm. uh, then then someone's going to be able to use it and make it into a terrorist uh, uh, opportunity. Well, if that ever happens, you would be the first person I would call to come help educate us on how to confine it, take care of it, treat it. So thank you for this incredibly fascinating talk about biological terrorism, um, something I knew nothing about, and now I feel much better educated. So thank you. Oh, thank you, uh, Rachel. And thank you, Jeff, for being here. And thanks for the omelet. Yeah. Have a good day. (laughs) You too.